For most of the year 1945, much of the world was still at war. World War II touched almost every part of public life and public consciousness. So it was inevitably reflected on the big screen in 1945. With movies like Keep Your Powder Dry, where Lana Turner joins the Women's Army Corps, and God is My Co-Pilot, the big screen adaptation of a real-life account of service with the Flying Tigers. And another film, one that begins with a dramatic battle sequence. A U.S. Navy ship is sunk by a German U-boat. Everyone on board perishes except for two soldiers who manage to escape with their lives, only to spend the next 18 days adrift and starving on a small lifeboat before they're rescued. And that movie, surprisingly, is a comedy. But even more surprising, it's also a Christmas movie. Or, to be more accurate, it's considered one now, even though it wouldn't have been in 1945. When is a Christmas movie not a Christmas movie? Well, for starters, when it's released in August, like the movie in question was. And also when it arrives before a time when the very notion of Christmas movies even existed. It's easy to look at a movie with modern eyes and say, well, if it takes place during the Christmas season, or includes Christmas themes or imagery, then it's a Christmas movie. But that's not how it's always worked. Here's something to consider. Nowadays, we think of Galileo as a scientist. His career of inquiry, discovery, and scholarship, and his undeniable contributions to our understanding of the world fit perfectly with our modern notion of science, scientists, and the scientific method. But the word scientist wasn't even coined until almost exactly 200 years after Galileo died. It's more fitting to say he was a scientist in modern parlance. And so too, many of the movies we now consider Christmas movies are only Christmas movies in modern parlance. So if movies depicting Christmas weren't always thought of as Christmas movies, what happened between then and now? Oh, and by the way, what movie are we even talking about here? To answer the last question first, that movie is Christmas in Connecticut, a movie that begins with a naval battle but ends up as a madcap romantic comedy set in a New England country home, and yes, it hit theaters in August of 1945. And that means that it was released within just a couple of years from Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life. But these days, Christmas in Connecticut, like many similar movies of its time, is considered at best a mostly forgotten classic. Why? And as to that first question, what happened between then and now, well, it's mostly thanks to one thing. A single, revolutionary invention that would change Christmas forever. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Arguably, Christmas in Connecticut has more to do with Connecticut than Christmas. Specifically, a country home in Connecticut where most of a farcical romantic comedy unfolds. After a naval ship sinking, that is. The idea that in 1945 you could start a wacky comedy with the sinking of a troop ship that has two survivors. <laughs> was America that ground down by World War II that it was just like, oh yeah, mass casualties. That's hilarious. That's Alonzo Duralde. He's a film critic, podcaster, and the author of the book Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. He's also a frequent guest here on Christmas Past. And yes, the movie exhibits some of the stylistic quirks of a bygone era. But at its heart, it's just a good old-fashioned romantic comedy. 
Barbara Stanwyck plays the main character, Elizabeth. Uh, she's a really fascinating figure of, of early talkies, basically, because she starts in the 1930s in what we now call pre-code films. The, the Hayes Code was established around like 1933, 1934, basically as it was Hollywood trying to get ahead of sort of local censorship boards. You know, I think she, she's really got three classic Christmas movies under her belt. She's got this. She's got Meet John Doe. And then uh, uh, Remember the Night, which was written by Preston Sturges. I think it was the last film that he wrote that he didn't direct, which is a a very charming comedy where, again, she's both tough. She's playing a shoplifter, but also, you know, this very vulnerable romantic lead who falls in love with Frederick Murray when he takes her home for Christmas. And you sort of get to see her. You know, how her life might have been different if her family had been as loving as Fred McMurray's is, you know. And despite its undeniable old timiness, it's not hard to imagine a story like this being successful today. Elizabeth writes a popular column for a women's magazine featuring country recipes and reflections on her life in Connecticut with her husband and baby. But the truth is that she's single, lives in the city, and couldn't cook to save her life. The recipes she publishes come from her uncle who owns a restaurant, and the rest is just made up. Her editor knows her secret, but the magazine's publisher, the gruff Mr. Yardley, does not. Most of the drama in Elizabeth's life is in the form of her acquaintance John, an architect who frequently proposes marriage despite her lack of interest. All of that changes when a nurse at the convalescent hospital writes to Mr. Yardley. Her patient, Jefferson, is one of the officers who escaped the attack on the naval ship and ended up adrift for 18 days. During his recovery at the hospital, he's been reading Elizabeth's articles and dreaming of her recipes while he waits to be well enough for solid food again. He's never experienced a real Christmas, so the nurse asks Mr. Yardley in her letter if Jefferson could spend the holiday with Elizabeth's family in Connecticut. Sensing an opportunity for publicity, Mr. Yardley agrees, and he demands that Elizabeth make arrangements for Jefferson to spend the holiday with them in Connecticut. Thinking quickly, Elizabeth agrees to marry John after all because he happens to own a Connecticut country home. She brings along her restaurant owner uncle to secretly do her cooking for her, and it turns out that John's housekeeper babysits a neighbor's baby, so they can conveniently pretend that the baby is John and Elizabeth's to complete the charade. All she'll have to do is have a quick private wedding ceremony before anyone else arrives at the house. But before that can happen, Jefferson arrives unexpectedly early, and for Elizabeth, it's love at first sight. And adding one more major wrinkle, Mr. Yardley has invited himself to the house as well, rather than face a Christmas alone. From there, the plot unfolds in a frenzy of comic misunderstandings, mistaken identities, well-timed mishaps, and general mad cappery and daring do, all in the name of keeping up false appearances. There's a frantic level of wackiness, what they call the sort of the slamming doors farce, where people are kind of coming in and out of rooms quickly, and you have to make sure that person A doesn't see person C, or then person B will be found out as a liar, you know. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of plates that have to be kept spinning, and so there's a frantic level of wackiness wackiness. Eventually, and inevitably, the whole house of cards collapses, the truth comes out, and the story resolves in fairly predictable fashion. But you won't get any spoilers from me. Just suffice it to say that Warner Brothers, the studio that made the movie, described it as a story of, quote, finding the right man on the wrong honeymoon, when Santa Claus brings a bachelor girl, a sweetheart, a husband, and two babies for Christmas. And though Christmas is the catalyst, the main reason that all of these characters are thrust together in this situation, it's not really central to the story. 
at least not the way that it is in modern Christmas movies. In the 30s, 40s, and and I think even in the early 50s, you don't really have what we think of as the Christmas movie where it's constantly dripping in tinsel and every scene revolves around some very specific holiday activity. This could be a midsummer movie if you wanted it to because the farce isn't specifically about Christmas. Christmas is sort of incidental. I think also with this movie, it is so much a pure farce and pure comedy that it didn't enter the canon the way It's a Wonderful Life did because there's no tear jerking in this movie so many of the ones that we revere now as these christmas classics of course everyone always loved these uh oftentimes got a bum rap from critics and generally for the reasons that we like the movie talking about what sort of sentimental hogwash it is and of course that's not a bug it's a feature you know we're tuning in precisely for the sentimental hogwash did you catch that last part we tune in for these things tune in as in watch them on television because really the genre of the Christmas movie as we've come to know it didn't really exist until the dawn of television. And it was, I think, showing movies like this at Christmas time sort of became a ritual and became a thing that people look forward to. It makes perfect sense. Christmas movies couldn't have become a Christmas tradition without television. It's hard to imagine theaters running the same Christmas movies each year during the season and families having a tradition of all going to the movie theater to watch those movies together. No, only when television made it possible did this become a thing. At the time, Christmas in Connecticut was just a summer movie that happened to take place during the Christmas season. This would never fly today, but back in the 40s, nobody would have blinked. Miracle on 34th Street, which came out two years later, was also a summer movie release. As I've discussed before here on Christmas Past, many of the movies we consider Christmas classics earned that status not from being undeniably great, but from networks force-feeding them to us. It's a Wonderful Life became ubiquitous because it briefly lapsed into the public domain in the 1970s, allowing networks to air it for free. A Christmas Story was initially a modest success at best. Only through Ted Turner's movie marathons years later did it ascend to its current popularity. That might help explain why there are countless movies from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, movies that would, in modern parlance, be considered Christmas movies that go largely unwatched every season. It's tricky with older films. I think, first of all, black and white movies always have an uphill uh, road to hoe, you know, when it comes to TV. It's a Wonderful Life gets a pass and the original Miracle on 34th Street to some extent. But a lot of other older black and white movies, just unless they really hit in one way or other, don't get the, the constant TV exposure. Not only that, but as things have evolved, modern audiences do want Christmas movies to be dripping in tinsel in every scene. That goes for theatrical releases and the ones on TV. Speaking of TV, there is a bizarre footnote to this story about a remake of Christmas in Connecticut. A dismal remake. It is the one and only film directed by former California governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you would be shocked to know uh, lacks a light touch when it comes to comedy. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's kind of famously terrible. I've tried watching it on cable and it's I can't get through it. So this Christmas season, you'll probably watch the old tried and true Christmas movies and maybe check out one of the dozens from Hallmark or Lifetime. But for a little taste of Christmas past, why not experience a classic Christmas movie in modern parlance? And now for a Christmas memory. If you've been following the season so far, you'll know that Christmas memories are going to work a little differently this year. That's because I'm recording most of these episodes in the summer when it's still just a bit too early to ask you to send them. 
And I'm doing that because come November, we'll be welcoming a new member to the Christmas Past family and to the household here at Christmas Past headquarters. So in many of these episodes, like this one, the Christmas memory you hear will be from yours truly. But I want you to hear me loud and clear. I still want to include your Christmas memories this season. There's still time to send them, and there's still a place to include them in the episodes that will arrive closer to Christmas Day. As always, the thing to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. I grew up in a suburb south of Boston, and it was always a treat to venture into Boston to experience Christmas time in the city. The areas around Copley Square, the Boston Common, and Downtown Crossing were always done up with festive storefront displays, wreaths and lights strung up on the lampposts, the city's so-called frog pond offered outdoor ice skating, and if there wasn't already a dusting of snow on the ground, at least there was a nip in the air and the distant sound of Christmas music to complete that quintessential New England Christmas scene. But recreating a more classic version of that scene, with carolers in top hats and fur hand muffs, families gathered around the hearth reading Christmas stories, newsboys in fingerless gloves and tattered clothes standing outside the general store or the ice cream parlor, well, sights like that were there for the taking as well, in a series of store window displays. New England's famed Enchanted Village began in the windows of Jordan Marsh throughout the 1960s and 70s. The store discontinued this annual draw for most of the 70s and 80s, but started up again in the 90s. This is the period I remember as my first set of experience with the Enchanted Village. The village featured several scenes like small theatrical sets, a soda fountain where two figures sat, animatronic dolls that mimed the motion of sipping their drinks over and over again, carolers under a lamppost, a barbershop, children in Victorian nightgowns sitting at the foot of a chair while their father reads them a visit from St. Nicholas. This lasted about another 10 years, and then the entire operation was sold to the city. They would offer up the enchanted village for a few years under a huge tent in government center, and later in a function room at the Heinz Convention Center. But the city would eventually stop because it was too costly every year. The entire getup sat languishing in a warehouse for years. Until finally, in the early 2000s, a local furniture megastore bought the whole thing and recreated it in a large back corner of their showroom floor on permanent display. It's only open during the Christmas season, but it's given new life to a local custom that's nearly three generations old at this point. And I've been lucky enough to visit it the last couple of years when I returned home to Massachusetts for Christmas. It's been wonderful to relive fond memories, experience a unique and quirky piece of local Christmas history, and see my niece and nephew discover it for the first time themselves. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earl. Thanks so much to Alonzo Duraldi, and thank you for listening and being part of the Christmas Past family. I'm doing my part to grow the Christmas Past family. How about you? Let's spread Christmas cheer far and wide. Mentioning this show to a friend or family member or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts are quick and easy ways to show your support for the show. They don't cost a thing, and they really do make a big difference. If you leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. And visit christmaspast.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. 
Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.